Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 8th, 2021. We are careening into the future. I know, I, I'm not sure if I can predict what's going to happen in 2021, but of course, we do know uh, about the past, or we think we know about the past. Lots of quotations about the past being a foreign country. We've been thinking a lot about the past on this show. We, particularly um, the Middle Ages. It's the Middle Ages is a time in history, I think, which is particularly and peculiarly fascinating because it seems so different from where we are today. Um, we did a wonderful show with the uh, New Yorker writer, Timothy Egan, who recreated the pilgrimage between Canterbury and Rome. Uh, trying to quite literally step back into the Middle Ages. It's not just Egan, though. Uh, many people aren't nostalgic for the past. Joel Kotkin, the Chapman, Chapman University geographer, has warned us that with the inequalities of the 21st century, we're returning to the feudal age. And uh, a lot of people have uh, echoed Kotkin. Uh, we did a, a show last week with Simon Winchester, the English writer, who argues that the inequalities of land stem from the enclosure system of the late Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages still seems very central to how we think about ourselves. And my guest today on the show, uh, the Harvard University, distinguished Harvard University professor, uh, Joseph Henrich, he has a new book out, The Weirdest People in the World, argues that one of the unintended consequences of the early Middle Ages was modernity, what he calls the weirdest people in the world. He has a new book out, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly <clears throat> Prosperous. Uh, Joe seems, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, and I'm sure he won't let me, but Joe seems to locate the origins of our weirdness as an advanced Western civilization in the early Middle Ages. Joe, am I being accurate in terms of your book, The, the Central Thesis? Yeah, I mean, I see the uh, the key events that led uh, European populations down a different cultural evolutionary trajectory. I see as being initiated by a peculiar pattern of prohibitions and prescriptions that the, the church based in Rome, so one branch of the Christian church, began to implement in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. That's right. It's a wonderfully ironic thesis, the weirdest people in the world, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous, because it's something that most people would never even imagine, let alone argue. What was it about early, early Middle Ages, late antiquity? What was it in the change of the policy of the church, Joe, that in your mind at least led to the, the birth of modernity? Yeah, it was... Um... 
the key idea comes from an anthropologist named Jack Goody. And if it, when an anthropologist looks at Europe, he's puzzled or she's puzzled by the uh, family structure. So by, by 1500, we're, you know, we have the data, the statistical data to show that many European populations had an unusual marriage and family system. So monogamous nuclear families that lived relatively independent. When husbands and wives married, they lived independent of their families. They had inheritance by testament. No polygyny was permitted. No cousin marriage was permitted. And this stands in stark contrast to what anthropologists have documented around the world in societies from New Guinea to Asia to, to Africa. And so uh, this, this struck me, this is something unusual about Europe and something that needs to be explained. And then the question was, does that have any downstream implications, this, this demolition of the intensive kin-based institutions, the tightly bonded kin networks uh, that anthropologists have studied around the world? Like all great historical theses, Joe, uh, you seem, it seems to be premised on the unintended consequences. The, the, the fathers of the Christian church had no idea what they were doing. Are you suggesting then that history is more ironic or unexpected than materialists, Marxists, and uh, some sort of Western determinists have always argued? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's unexpected events and the, the things that people do that they don't realize the unintended consequences that have to that have to some of the biggest impacts. So in my research, I've spent a lot of time studying religion just because people can come to have different religious beliefs and they'll hold those beliefs because it's sacred or they think God wants them to or they think they'll be punished if they don't. Uh, and then by implementing those, that then can lead societies down alternative evolutionary, cultural evolutionary trajectories. Reading your book, I, of course, was reminded of, of Max Weber's great uh, thesis in his Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, suggesting that the origins of individualism and hard work lay, ironically enough, in the existential crisis that Protestantism um, triggered. How, how central is the Weberian thesis to your argument? So, yeah, it's 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 it's. It dovetails in an interesting way because I sort of I lead off the book with uh, showing the way that Protestantism spread literacy. Uh, so after 1500, you begin to get the first populations in the world to become highly literate. And that's really driven by um, an obsession. So it's called solo scriptura, that everything comes from reading the Bible and that everybody, men and women, should learn to read the Bible for themselves. And this places a premium on reading. This is one of these unintended consequences and begins to spread literacy, which then literacy has tons of downstream consequences. Whereas the Protestants themselves just cut, you know, everybody should develop this human divine relationship by reading the sacred scriptures on their own. It was a very individualistic way of looking at religion. So the rest of the book is in many ways about getting to Protestantism, which I do think that Protestantism had big and important effects, but how could you, you need to get to a place where you could even dream up a religion that's so based on mental states and so focused on the individual that you could be arrogant enough to think that every individual should be able to read the sacred text for themselves and, and get anything out of it. And so going back a thousand years to the late antiquity, uh, is kind of a way of explaining how you, it, you know, it's getting to Weber, getting to that argument anyway. Uh, I hope some of our more liberal members of the audience are beginning to squirm, Joe. They're hearing a Harvard professor say we're not quite as morally superior as we think. 
um, and that our supposed moral superiority, our sense of individualism and democracy and prosperity lay in some bizarre um, change of policy of the church. I want to quote from the beginning of the book. I, I really love the book. Uh, you say, unlike much of the world today and most people who have ever lived, we weird people, and you're speaking of you and I and our audience, uh, are highly individualistic, self-obsessed, control-oriented, non-conformist and analytical. We focus on ourselves, our attributes, accomplishments and aspirations over our relationships and social roles. We aim to be ourselves across contexts and see inconsistencies in others as hypocrisy rather than flexibility. Joe, are you a moral nihilist? Are you suggesting that morality is itself essentially environmental and that it doesn't really mean anything? Well, what I'm what sort of my enterprise is, or at least one of the things in my enterprise is to try to understand the origins of morality and to try to understand how it evolves and how we can explain why it is that different populations have different moralities and, and place different emphases on different virtues. Is that an answer to my question, Joe? Are you saying yes or no? Are you suggesting that there is such a thing as morality or it's invented as a convenience to make us feel better and perhaps in a Darwinian sense to allow us to survive and dominate? Yeah, so I'm saying, well, so the, my effort, my enterprise is to try to explain where morality comes from. So I see it as a product of two kinds of evolutionary processes. One is a cultural evolutionary process where people pass ideas down over generations, and these are shaped by all kinds of forces. Now, one of these forces that it's shaped by is the competition amongst groups. So if certain groups have certain kinds of moral beliefs or norms about how you should treat strangers or behave towards others or about stealing and, and all kinds of things, uh, then that group may be able to proliferate at the expense of groups with a different morality that's maybe more narrow and it doesn't engage cooperation at as wide a level. Of course, it's shaped by all kinds of things about how we think that are, that are products of our genetic evolution. So then the next step would be thinking about our genetic evolution and how aspects of genetic evolution shape contemporary morality. Let's but go back. Yeah. And you go on in this in this wonderful opening uh, series of pages. You say, like everyone else, we are inclined to we are inclined to go along with our peers and authority figures, but we are less willing to confirm to others what this when this conflicts with our own beliefs, observations, and preferences. We see ourselves as unique beings, not as nodes in a social network that stretch out through space and back in time. Uh, we prefer a sense of control and the feeling of making our own choices. That is essentially modern individualism. Um, is this a myth? Are you suggesting that we, we, we shouldn't be so confident about our own individual powers? Uh, yeah, I mean, so one of the one of the ways this comes up in the book is that we tend to think of uh, inventions as as being associated with a single heroic inventor. Uh, but when you actually dig apart the details and you look at the history of technologies or something like that, you see that uh, the contribution of any particular individual is relatively small. And it's actually the collective network that brings ideas together. But because we're so individually oriented, we tend to look for the heroic inventor. And this odd practice, the European practice of naming things after the inventor, uh, begins around 1500 or so. And uh, Europeans actually even went back and named old things, like the Pythagorean theorem was never called the Pythagorean theorem until the Europeans uh, went back and kind of named it. 
Thus the cult of Elon Musk, Joe. <laughs> right, right. Find the heroic inventor. And today Elon Musk announced that uh, his company, uh, Tesla, was supporting uh, uh, Bitcoin. Um, so compounding the, the digital uh, crypto revolution, which only supports your point. You have a section, a very interesting section in the book, Joe, on work and its role in, in, in the Protestant revolution. Uh, we had a couple of people on the show recently, Sarah Jaffe arguing that work is overrated and that it's making us miserable. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the work of James Sussman like you. He's a, a kind of a cultural anthropologist. He wrote a book about work. Um, he goes back, Sussman, to Africa, like you do. He's, he's very active in the field. How valuable, uh, Sussman's argument is we can learn from the pre-moderns. Do you believe that? Should we, like Sussman and Winchester and many other modern writers, in order to fix what we see as wrong in, in our highly individualized society, modern society, and our weird, to use your word, weird society, should we, we, should we be returning to the Bushmen, to the people of Fiji, to the, 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 the pre-modern people that you've done so much field research with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my view of innovation is that it comes from the recombination of different ideas <clears throat> drawn from diverse minds. So uh, in order to, you know, to get new ideas and to create new recombinations and new ways of doing things and new ways of thinking, we really want to reach out as broadly as possible and get a full sampling of human cognitive and social diversity and different ways of doing things. And that fertilizes and, and drives uh, change in our own society and allows the creation of new ways of living, new forms of social organization. So I think that's a rich way to get to get new. new but, 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 but isn't the past, again, to misquote someone, isn't the past a foreign country? Isn't the whole essence of your argument is that we've left behind a, a, a world where cousins married cousins? Um, and uh, so what's the point of, 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 of trying to fetishize, of doing a Rousseau on the past and romanticizing it? Imagine we can return. Yeah, so I don't think you want to imagine you can return, but you can, my thought is that you can get interesting ideas, which will then recombine and fit into your own life in some way. Or but aren't that, isn't that seductive? Doesn't that allow us to have our cake and eat it? We can be highly individualized and also fetishize community and connectivity. <laughs> well, we, the, I mean, one of the lessons I think from the book, the, the penultimate chapter really focuses on how you drive innovation. So things like immigration and uh, anything that interconnects populations is going to help drive more rapid innovation. So understanding what, uh, how and how humans as a society and as a group uh, generate new ideas and stuff is really important given the role of technology in our society. Uh, so rather than focus on the heroic inventor, we need to interconnect more and take advantage of the diverse ideas that people from different places bring. That's the thesis of a lot of economists. I know I've had Mariana Mazuchutu, the distinguished British economist on the show, arguing that we need to understand all innovation is a collective enterprise and very much bound up in the state. Now, Joe, you, at least on Wikipedia, you're known as a human evolutionary biologist, quite a mouthful. It doesn't sound very political, but I thought your book was pretty political. Because it seems as if in the book itself, you're arguing the great break from the past as a consequence of this change of church policy was the creation of essentially of, of Tocquevillian intermediary organizations, this escape from the family. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I don't necessarily think that that has to be political, but uh, certainly- It is in terms of the origins of democracy. Yes, in order to get the democracy, you have you, you, the family, if it's too strong, you end up getting the corruption is easier to invade. People begin to make choices in order to uh, contribute, to show family loyalty. Um, if you're running impersonal organizations, people hire relatives. I mean, a lot of the stuff we call corruption is just cooperation among a closer uh, group of family and friends. Um, so you, you've got to break those links enough to be able to allow these voluntary organizations to come to dominate the society, which is, I think, what happened beginning in the high Middle Ages. We've had a lot of commentary, and then I'm sure you've done a lot of thinking about this, and you, you teach at Harvard, so I'm sure you hear it every day, about the crisis of American democracy. Um, we had Michael Lynn, the University of Texas political theorist on the show, talking about his book, The New Class War, which suggests mm -hmm. that the only way to save democracy is to rebuild the intermediary institutions, which seem to have withered away in the the sort of the, the 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 Reaganite world. Do you think there's some truth to that? Do we need to rebuild the unions and churches, which seem so weak today, in an in an America of increasing isolation and individualism? Yeah, I mean that's an interesting thesis as a way of fixing it. So, I mean, my in my lab, we've done some analyses, and we can show patterns in the U.S. where um, th there's variation in moral psychology from a kind of moral morality that is more local uh, and concerned about issues like purity and stuff um, in the counties that were most likely to vote for Trump in both of the last two presidential elections, all the way out to places where people are really focused on morality and justice and not, not thinking locally at all, so much more universalistic morality. And it could be that one of the key things is, as I talk about in, in, in Europe of the Middle Ages, uh, these small towns where people are, were citizens within a town and they participated locally with, with strangers and stuff, but it was a local thing. Monasteries, universities, guilds, all of these things brought unrelated people together, but had them build social relationships, build social capital, that kind of thing. So that, that could be an important role in, in getting uh, past some of these uh, moral differences that we're seeing appearing across the US. Recently, we had your, your Harvard colleague, Michael Sandel on the show too, who of course is one of America's most distinguished communitarians. We've also had Robert Putnam, another of your colleagues at Harvard. How does a, a professor of human evolutionary biology make sense of the communitarian philosophies of people like Sandel and Putnam? Well, maybe you could tell me more specifically how their ideas interface with mine. I haven't had a chance to read Putnam's new book. Well, Putnam's argument is America has been in decline, of course, because of bowling alone and that this we need to return to community. Um, and I think unlike you, they believe that this is possible. They're, they're sort of working outside the broader historical context. Do you believe then that, that some of the community that we, we seem to have lost can be rediscovered? even in our highly individualized age? Well, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I think it's possible. Uh, and it would be interesting to see different social experiments. So I'm, a, you know, I'm kind of an evolutionist in the sense that I think that different groups will try different things and there may be new and creative ways to produce those communities. Um, but I mean, we've been doing analyses on some of that stuff that you're mentioning about the decline of um, or the changes over the 20th century. And we find that a lot of those effects, or at least some of them, are driven by war shocks. 
So one of the scary parts is that one of the things that pulled Americans together uh, seemed to be the, the various wars that the U.S. was involved in during the 20th century. So you see a big increase in that right after the wars, and it's actually strongest in the counties that supplied the most number of soldiers for World War I or World War II. It's interesting, uh, Joe, that you bring up war. Uh, the weirdest people are, according to you, Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. You don't, you don't add violence and war. We had uh, the, the. I know you're from Canada too, so you're very familiar with Margaret Macmillan, your great historian, and new book, War: How Conflict Shaped Us. Why don't you include war and violence in your in your categories of the weirdest people in the world? Are we moderns more or less violent than the people of the uh, 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 of the pre-Middle Ages? Uh, yeah, I guess I got to agree with my colleague Steve Pinker on this, who, who wrote this book about the decline of violence. Uh, and there's been a definite decline in, in all kinds. I mean, you know, Steve goes through all the dimensions. Uh, now, there's, you know, there's some complexities there. But uh, I mean, there's just fewer people dying in violent conflicts. There's fewer executions. Children, parents don't beat their children as much. I mean, just pick a dimension and there's less violence. Yeah, so. So, uh, so, so you're arguing that uh, the role of violence and in, in, industrial military operations in the in colonial Europe and and, and and in the modern age, they're not really particularly interesting or important in historical terms. Well, no, I mean those things. Obviously, colonialism is hugely important and had uh, horrifying effects on lots of people. Uh, and, you know, the, the spread of diseases into the new world is horrific in terms of the percentage of the population. So those are huge, consequential and super important. Um, but in terms of the kind of like if, if you look at modern wars and you look at your likelihood of being killed in, in a modern conflict, uh, it just seems to be much lower than it's been in the past, go, going all the way back uh, thousands of years. What's the role of gender, Joe, in, the, in, in your thesis? Uh, we've had, a, obviously, lots and lots of shows about women and modernity, feminism. We had Ruth ben Giat on the show talking about strong men, this return to authoritarianism. Is there something masculine about uh, the pre-weird world? Well, often uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of it's it, it's a complicated question and it's one that I'm interested in. So lots of societies were patrilineal and patrilocal. So that's a case where the kinship system actually creates a system where where w women are young. So they're older teenagers, say, and they get chipped off to marry a husband. It might be in a polygynous household uh, and that gives them very little bargaining power in the household and it has a bad effect. So both polygyny and cousin marriage can be shown to have negative effects on women's freedom, probably because of how it affects the bargaining power. It also uh, hurts childhood survival. Uh, so, so getting rid of these things actually did give women some freedom. So monogamy has benefits. Not living with your mother-in-law has benefits. So living, setting up an independent yeah, house. You don't need to tell most men that, right? <laughs> and uh, Yeah, so those things. But at the same time, there are places that were matrilineal where, uh, and matrilocal where women had more control over the means of productions or made a larger contribution to household subsistence. What about the sexual, the, the, the sexual element in terms of this change in the, the church's policy? It was obviously a change in policy made by men. Was it good or bad for men in evolutionary terms, in sexual terms, to not be able to presumably have sex with your cousin or your sister? Uh, well, it would have been, it was 
bad, well, so if you take the overall uh, policy of the church, the single biggest piece that's going to affect people's fitness is going to be the, the prohibition on polygyny. And so that would have been bad for the fitness of the elites and good for the fitness of low status males. So when you impose monogamy, you redistribute women essentially across the classes and you prevent the, the elites from taking additional wives and concubines and building large harems. So if you look at the kings of Europe, sure, they, they had lots of mates, but they couldn't do what kings had done from Oceania to Asia to Africa, where they created large harems. And um, so, and this, these women end up marrying, you know, middle or, or lower class men who then get a chance and become participants in the mating market. Uh, your thesis, of course, about weirdness is, is true, both metaphorically, but also literally. Uh, we are very weird and we're obsessed with our weirdness. We had um, Roy Richard Grinker on the show last week talking about nobody's normal, how culture created the stigma of mental illness. I know there's not that much in your book about that, but you know, given, given our increasing obsession with, with mental illness, how, um, how intimate is the rise of mental illness in a weird culture, in our culture dominated by uh, the weirdest people in the world? Are, they, are weird people more or less liable to mental illness? Is it a construct of weird people? Yeah, I uh, I don't think it's well. So we're we're getting a little bit out of my expertise, uh, but I, I do dip into this. Okay. <laughs> well, I do dip into this literature occasionally, and my take is that you do see some kinds of mental illness in lots of places, but there is a tendency, especially more recently in Western society, to pathologize everything, to be really focused on individual pathologies, not to create social niches for people with pathologies. And of course, you know, in lots of places, people with pathologies can become uh, shamans or seers or they're, they're, they can be seen as special. Uh, and we don't tend to do that. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's some interesting patterns. We've also uh, there's a great book about how the West shipped, uh, exported lots of mental disease categories. Things like eating disorders had never been seen anywhere until, uh, you know, Western Westernization. No, no show these days, Joe, of course, would be complete without mention of Mr. T, Donald Trump. We've had lots of lots of uh, lots of shows about him. We had the Washington Post uh, writer, uh, reviewer. What were we thinking? Carlos Lazada, even a book about books about Trump. When I was reading your book, I was sort of intrigued by the fact that Trump seems to trigger all our angriest emotions as 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 weirdos especially you know when he makes sexual suggestions about his wife you suggested earlier that trump supporters were likely to fall into the non-weirdo camp uh, is there something about trump that particularly offends weird people well, I mean, at the far end of kind of the moral universalism end of the scale within the US, people are really focused on fairness and justice. And, you know, Trump's, you know, he starts his campaign with his comments about immigrants, which run very much against kind of the fairness and justice end of the, the moral universalism spectrum, but plays right into the concerns of the people, the more parochial end or more communitarian end of that scale. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the understanding the differences in the moral psychologies of Americans helps understand whether 
Trump's your hero or Trump, you know, really pushes your buttons. And of course, Trump talks endlessly about the China threat. We've had lots of shows about the rise of China and the decline of the United States and the West. Are we the end, in your view, of the hegemony of, of weirdos, Joe? Yeah, well, I think things are changing because lots of places in the world seem to be, well, they seem to be going different directions. So Western institutions have been adopted incredibly widely. Uh, but then in places like Japan and China, where some Western institutions have been adopted, I mean, lots, except not, not democratic government, obviously, uh, you're, we're seeing new recombinations. So I think things are going to go in a lot of different directions now. Meaning that we're going to return? Can it, it, Does China operate in some ways on a, on a pre-weirdo world? Well, it's something more complicated because if you look at the trust measures in China, and I, I discussed this in the book, if you just ask people, do you trust, in general, do you trust people around here? They're pretty high. They look Western on that. But then if you say, do you trust foreigners, people you met for the first time and people uh, from different religions, most people say, no, are you kidding? So they, it seems like, and, and this comes from the business literature too, it seems like the Chinese economic system builds uh, through personal relationships. And uh, people who are workmates are often friends and they build a personal relationship where that's less, you know, comparatively, it's less common. So if you compare MBAs who came out of Colombia and went, some went back to China and some stayed in the US, you can see this distinct pattern of their social relationships. So, and, you know, they, they dissolved the family. They implemented with this marriage and family program beginning in 1950. So they, you know, at least in the urban populations, and they have the one child policy too, which had a dramatic effect on this kind of thing. So in some ways they've broken people down to individuals, but then the way things are being recreated, you don't have voluntary associations because the government's not too keen on those. Uh, so, so it's a new direction, I think. I told you you're a political writer, even if even if it's not explicit. Uh, your book is a wonderful book. It's 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 long, but full of, of fascinating observations and implications. Uh, it's been compared uh, with uh, with ja uh, with Jared Diamond's uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. It's one of those kinds of books for people watching uh, Joe who want to write that kind of book what are its strengths and weaknesses do you think not your book but that genre of 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 of, of, of diamond or joseph henrik broad yeah. books which are interdisciplinary and uh cover vast historical material well of course the big challenge is you inevitably have to go outside of your your main expertise so you end up going into fields like i spent a long time uh, reading, you know, medieval history, and then uh, communicating with historians, you know, trying to run my ideas by them, see where I'm missing things. Uh, so, I mean, you've just got to rely on some kind of network of, of other experts, but there's no way to write a book like this and be an expert on every topic you talk you about. You have to be a weirdo, in other words. You need, you need to escape the family, both your professional right. family and, uh, and to return to the past. Well, I want to congratulate you and thank you so much. I hope my questions haven't been too facile for you yeah, uh, this book which is an excellent read as i said it's 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 become a i think a, a surprising bestseller no one expected a, a 500 page book about changes in marriage policy with the roman catholic church to become such a big hit but 
that's the nature of publishing. What other books should people be reading? I know you're stuck in Brookline over the Charles uh, in this weird times, uh, using that word again, in COVID times. In addition to your book, what should people be reading, Joe? Well, uh, for fun, my next book is this book called Exercised by my colleague Dan Lieberman, where he takes an evolutionary approach to, to human exercise and tries to understand, uh, you know, it's kind of, the, he tries to deal with the myths of exercise. And I guess there are many. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, the irony is, is that not only was he was on the show, but he at the end of our show recommended your book and then he introduced me to you. So it's a small world, perhaps not quite as weird as you suggested. Uh, Joe, Joseph Heinrich, the author of The Weirdest People in the World. It's an honor, pleasure. And I hope you have a happy, healthy 2021. I'll have to have you back on the show again to, uh, to argue over more provocative, broad historical theses. Thank you again. Great. Good to be with you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.